Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would remind us of the good works that Christ is doing in us, in our church and in the world, that we would glorify you through him in all that we do. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. One of those bad habits that I've developed as a nature of being the age that I am is getting stuck and sucked into social media. And my Lenten attempt, and I think attempt is probably the best word here, is to not do that. We'll just say that that's all, all we'll say on that. But the reason that I find social media to be so dangerous and destructive to my soul and so many other people's souls is that it's easy to see just the good that's going on for somebody else and, and to wonder, well, why is that person's work or ministry or life going so well? Well, it feels like mine is just drudgery. It's not always drudgery, but you get where I'm going with that, just so nobody thinks I'm saying something I'm not. In other words, it's easy to look at what's going on for somebody else and go, man, I wish that was me. When you miss all the blessings that are in your own life. I want to take a, a really brief moment and say something else about social media before I actually get into the point. It's, it's relatively relevant, but a slight offshoot. If you're a grandparent, especially of a teenage girl, teenage boys as well, but teenage girls more especially seem to be overwhelmingly affected by the forces of social media. And I just want to make a side point here. Tell her how amazing she is. Tell her that she's fearfully and wonderfully made. Tell her that you love her, that you care for her, and that Jesus loves her. Because outside, out there on social media and on the internet, there are all kinds of insidious and evil forces that are telling her that she's less than. And so I, just as an aside, since we talked about social media, I wanted to remind those of you who have the privilege of being a grandparent of a teenager, especially a teenage girl, to reinforce how amazing that person is and that they don't need those outside forces trying to push them into things that aren't good. And the reason I bring this in not just as a, hey, exhortation is also because Satan does this, right? He tells me like, oh, you're not doing as good as Fred is doing. Fred is so much more amazing than you. And look at all the things that are going on, but we don't know the struggles of Fred's life. Just like those poor teenage girls see just the really beautiful pictures of, of young women, but don't see all the hours that go into making those pictures or know what Photoshop does to them, right? So he tells us, you're not as good as this other person. And that brings us to the important, the crux of the question this morning. What is the Lord doing in your life? Right? It's easy, like we just said, to see what he's doing in somebody else's life, whether it be the person sitting next to us in the pew or our friend from church or somebody else on social media and be like, well, I don't know. I don't think he's doing anything in my life. But if you're here this morning, the Lord is doing something in your life. 
He's doing something beautiful and good. And this is really the crux of what Jesus is saying to Peter this morning. Right before this, there's this sort of awkward confrontation where Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? To which Peter says, you know that I do. And then Jesus gives him a command. And in the end, Jesus tells Peter how he's going to die. Which, I mean, if you're in that conversation, that's going to be kind of awkward and uncomfortable. But Peter's Peter. And so Peter then responds, well, well, and that's where we picked up this morning. Well, what about, what about him? And Jesus is like, no, don't worry about John. Worry about yourself. Do the thing that I just told you to do. And John's going to do what I have told him to do. So don't worry about what John, about John. Do, feed my sheep, clothe my sheep, follow what I have told you to do. See, we can be a lot like Peter, can't we? We can see what this other person is doing, whether it be on social media or just in our own churches or in our community and and go, wow, I wish Jesus was using me like he's using that person and miss all the things that he's doing through us in our lives to his glory. And if you're busy looking at what that other person's doing, then how can you be doing the things that Jesus has called you to do? How can you see the things that Jesus is doing in your heart? If you're so busy looking at that other person, you're going to miss how you're being sanctified. You're going to miss what the Lord is calling you to. And it's going to be something like the person that's plowing the field or driving their car and keeps looking and, and drifting away, the, away and around and We've seen those drivers around town and we know how terrifying they are. So look at where Jesus is bringing you. Look at the exhortation of Peter and know that that is what you are being exhorted to, that you would turn your eyes to Christ, that you would focus on Christ, and that you would let him work through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we have this odd little statement that this is the disciple here who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that the testimony is true. Throughout the gospel, according to St. John, John simply refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And this can seem kind of odd. And and perhaps it is that during their time, they knew, well, the disciple whom Jesus loved was was John and, and We knew this because of his relationship with him and so on and so forth. But John is also doing something here where he's trying to step back, where he's trying to make sure that you and I know and everybody who might read the gospel according to St. John, that the hero of the story isn't John. It isn't Peter. It isn't any of the apostles. The hero of the story is Jesus. And he wants us to only focus on Jesus. So even when he says, hey, this is written by me, He doesn't use his name. He pulls himself back to this place of anonymity so that what we focus on is what Jesus is doing. And it's easy to forget this, right? Even in our own lives. We can overcome some great thing. We can repent from some great thing and then be like, well, look at me. But the reality is, is it's that Christ has freed you from that sin. Christ has healed you from that pain. Christ is making you new. 
And then we get to the end of this, of John's, the gospel according to St. John, in fact, and we have this incredible literary statement. He writes, now there are as also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Isn't that a beautiful, incredible statement? Isn't that a fascinating way to end this? Jesus did so much more than what I just told you about. And so John makes sure he ends by magnifying Christ. Make sure he ends by you knowing that it is Christ and Christ alone who has done all of these great works. If you remember the start of this series, as we worked through the seven miracles of Jesus that John presents to us, we made a statement that the, that the miracles were meant to show something important, but not to be remotely exhaustive. And we know the fact that this, they aren't exhaustive because we can open the synoptic gospels and find dozens of miracles that are not even mentioned in the gospel according to St. John. But John wanted us to know something about Christ. In fact, John wanted to know us, wanted us to know who Jesus was. First and foremost, that he was in fact the Christ, the Messiah. Because you see, much like we often look for an earthly Messiah, somebody that will fix our problems right here and right now, the Jews were looking for somebody who would come and drive out the Romans and make everything better. But Jesus did so much more than that. And John had to point to the things that proved the fact that Jesus was that Messiah, is that Messiah that not only sets us free, but makes us God's children. John showed us that Jesus was the Son of God. And more than that, he was, as we say week in and week out in the creeds, the very God of very God. That Jesus was not just the Son, but he himself was the second person of the Trinity. That he himself was God made man. And so he skipped all those other miracles in the synoptic gospels, not because they were important or were not important, but because he wanted to point specifically to who Jesus was so that you might know him. Many believe that John's gospel was meant to be sort of a confrontation to non-believers, to show them that it is good to believe, to show them who Jesus is, and to beg this question, will you follow Jesus? And so John lays out this argument to reveal who he is, and not just who he is, but that it is a good thing to follow him. And yet this statement says something even more amazing. First and foremost, in the life of Jesus, in those short 33 years, he did and taught so many wonderful things that if somebody could write them all down, they would be exhaustive. They would be massive. They would fill the whole world. And of course, there's something a little bit poetic going on here. If you remember the Christmas gospel where we go back to John 1 and we read that through the word, the world was made and that word is 
Jesus. It's fitting that all that he did fills the world. But we can take this point even further. We can take this point to realize that all of Scripture points us to Christ. All of Scripture reveals and magnifies him. And some of you who weren't here last year where we spent a lot of time in the Old Testament might be wondering, well, how are we going to make this argument? Because it makes sense for the New Testament, right? Of course, the Gospels are about Jesus. That one's easy. The Acts of the Apostles aren't a whole lot harder, although we'd spend a lot of time talking about the Apostles. The Apostles never seek to glorify themselves, but to glorify Christ. Easy enough. Of course, the Epistles are all about what it looks like to walk with Christ, all about what it looks like to glorify Christ. That's another easy one. And of course, Revelation tells us to persevere until Christ's return and then tells us about the beauty and goodness of that return. But what about the Old Testament? If you weren't here in the last year, this might be a little bit surprising. But there's a few ways we can think about this. First and foremost... The Old Testament is written by God's people through God's inspiration, reflecting on what God has done. In fact, we can say that about all of, all of Scripture. But it is God that's acting throughout the Old Testament. We can see points where the people have just so deeply abandoned God that he's not doesn't seem as though he's acting at all, and we can see evil boil up. There are parts where we can see God's hand directly intervene. But we can also agree on the understanding that God is the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. And if God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, then God has always been, will always be triune. Just because it took Christ being incarnate in the world doesn't mean that Christ wasn't, in, wasn't part of the Trinity before he became incarnate but rather he revealed himself and revealed the nature of God more fully in his incarnation. And so the whole Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit works throughout all of Scripture. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 21, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost is working three in one, one in three. So when we read scripture devotionally, we can see Christ magnified. Whether it be in the horrors of Judge, the book of Judges, whether it be in the glory of the calling of Abraham in Genesis, whether it be in the Psalms, whether it be in the prophets, whether it be in the gospel accounts or in Revelation, Christ is glorified in those passages. The radical claim of scripture actually goes even bigger than this. Especially in the ancient Near East. If you read some of the accounts, it's as though the people outside of Israel recognize, oh, Israel has this God named Yahweh, and that's, that's fine and good for them. And we have Baal, or we have Dagon, or we have so on and so forth. But the claim of scripture isn't simply that Yahweh is that local God for Israel but that he is God 
He is sovereign over the whole world. There's an incredible part in, in 1 Kings, no, 1 Samuel. Yeah, 1 Samuel, where the Ark of the Covenant gets stolen by the Philistines and they put it in with all the other gods and they go in in the morning and Dagon has fallen on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. And it's a reminder that God is God over the whole world, over Dagon, over all of these other little local gods. And so we see that the work of God in Jesus are not limited to what we see just in Israel, but he is working whether the people realize it or not. There are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself cannot contain the books that would be written. I became a Christian the summer that I turned 17. I had I'd gone to this uh, conference and met some Christians, and their lives were different than everybody else that I really interacted with on a daily basis. And I found it interesting, and it, it challenged me to think about what, what the meaning of life was. This compounded with the fact that I was struggled with depression, anxiety, and loneliness made me wonder, what if there is, in fact, something more? I had gone to church off and on, but it wasn't really a part of my life. And if, if you had asked me if I was Christian, I probably would have said, I guess so. But that summer, this question bugged me. And I went into August not knowing Jesus and left August knowing him. The process was strange and interesting. But he took a lonely teenager and gave him a home in the church. You see, each and every one of you has a testimony to what Christ has done in your life. One of the most fascinating and I I would say coolest things about having to keep the little record book, which is not a part of my job that I really love to do, but it is seeing when you all were baptized. Some of you were baptized in the last decade, and that is beautiful and good. Some of you might have come back to Christ in your 20s. Some of you as teenagers. And some of you, I remember writing down the dates of your birthday and then a few days later, writing the date of your baptism. What an amazing testimony to the faithfulness of God in our lives. Each of you, whether you were that baby that was baptized five days after you were born or baptized a year and a half ago, you are being worked through God and you are being sanctified, and your lives are to his glory. I have noticed that Jesus makes each one of our stories incredible and unique. And it's fascinating to think about it and see how Satan has tripped up people that I've ministered to, that I know, that I've watched their lives play out. And your stories, if we were to sit down and collect all of your stories, they would be beautiful and unique. But Satan's working is always kind of the same. He has this little playbook that he does for each person, and somehow we don't catch on to it until it's too late. And so there's that beauty in the fact that God has not only created each and every one of you as beautiful and unique people, that he has also saved you in beautiful and unique ways. It is a powerful reminder of God's depth of love for you and I. 
It reminds us of how God is glorified in your salvation. Whether you be that baby that was baptized at five days old, or the person who was baptized recently, or the person who's walked through all kinds of ups and downs, doubts and trials, sin and joy, God is being glorified in your salvation and your sanctification. If we were to take some time and write down each of our testimonies in full from birth to today, it would fill this room. Think about what it would look like if we did that with all the churches that preach the gospel in Prescott. What if we did that with all the churches that preach the gospel in Arizona, in the United States, in the world? There are also many things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus also works through the church. Not only does he bring salvation for your comfort, your salvation is more than just for your comfort. It is to build up his church. Each and every one of you have unique giftings that we may be his body on earth. Think about the work of our church. We are small. We can't do a lot. And yet we help out year in and year out with the Surf Collective, being a blessing to our community. For Lent, our Lenten giving is going to the Agape House to help families in need, to help families that have lost their home not only get back on their feet, but learn new skills to not end up homeless again. Think about the school that we support overseas that helps children that are the lowest of the low, the most marginalized in their country. The church is a reflection is meant to be the body of Christ until Christ's return. And in that, she reflects Christ's love for the world. There are also many things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written down, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Think about this this week. Think about all that Christ has done in your life. Think about all that Christ has done in our little local church, in the church in Prescott, in the church around the country and around the world. Think about all that Christ has done in the history of the world. Think about all that Christ has done in Holy Scripture. Now, my friends, there are also many other things that Jesus has done. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.